Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're using this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're exploring volumes 2 through 13, and we're in volume 7 right now. We've studied chapters 11 through 20 as part of our preparation for this class, and now we come together as a way to allow you to seek guidance and clarification on anything that you read. If you're joining us for the first time, that's fine. We're going to actually be reading the chapters in class today. They're the words of the Buddha. And while we call them chapters, they're not, you know, 50 minute long chapters or an hour long chapter. It's you know, relatively brief period to actually read the chapter. So someone in class will actually read the chapter during the class. Then I will share some teachings around that chapter and what the Buddha was actually saying. And then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have. So if you've been reading prior to class, then you'll be able to join right along and ask any questions that you have. If you are joining us for the first time, you can still join in with the learning and then ask any questions that you have. And if you'd like to kind of join in preparation for next week, you can download these books by going to buddhadailywisdom.com. And there you'll see a button for free books. You can download all the books there, volumes one through 13. I suggest you start with volume one, but if you would like to join into this program, you're welcome to do that because we're in volume seven and we'll continue through the rest of the volumes all the way until we get to the very last one and then we'll restart and go from the beginning all over again. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, thank you for deciding to dedicate time, effort, energy, and resources to learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings. The more that you learn and improve the condition of your mind, it's only going to help you, those close to you, and all of humanity as you start practicing and causing less and less harm in the world. The way that we start our classes is we start with a brief meditation period in order to kind of prepare the mind for actually learning. Because if you've been going through your day and you've been doing any number of things, you might have a little bit of accumulated clutter that has accumulated. It's kind of good to kind of clear that out, even if we just do, you know, 5, 10, 15 minute meditation. And that way, when we're actually learning the words of the Buddha, you can actually be more focused and actually retain the teachings for a longer period of time. This will actually help you to then practice the teachings. And you can use the same approach in many aspects of your life, whether you're going into a business meeting, whether you're going to have an important conversation with a life partner or your children, your parents or siblings or friends. If you're headed towards something that you're going to really need a lot of concentration in and you know that you haven't 
really been meditating that regularly or your concentration feels a little bit lower or you feel like the mind is a bit cluttered, you can actually do kind of a little brief meditation prior to going into that situation. Now, the ideal would be that you have two to three meditation sessions a day for 30 minutes or longer. That would be an ideal, consistent, ongoing practice. But you might find yourself in situations where you are doing that. But then you're going into a very important conversation. And when you experience that, that would be when you could do a 5, 10, 15 minute meditation just as a little top up, not necessarily counting it for one of your two to three meditations per day, but at least preparing the mind and giving it the best chance possible to go into this important conversation and have the very best results. Because if the mind is cluttered, it's going to have difficulties putting together things like right intention, right speech, and right action in your individual conversations. And any harm that you put out, it's going to come back to you because of the natural law of gamma. So you would like to have every single one of your conversations go really, really well in that you're not operating through craving anger and ignorance, but instead through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And this is going to help you to eliminate all that unwholesome gamma. So feel free to use this same strategy of meditating prior to important situations or important conversations to help you in that conversation and actually be able to take good decisions and make good decisions for what it is that you're discussing. So if you'd like to join us for meditation, please do so. Go ahead and pull up a seat or have a seat on the floor. Maybe you need a meditation cushion. You would like to get your lower body comfortable. I tend to not give too much guidance in this class for meditation. We do that in our group learning program, which is on Sunday and Wednesday. Go ahead and make your body comfortable with your upper body erect. Close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just establishing a nice, steady, consistent breath. Savakato Makawata Tamo Damang Namasami Supatipano Makawato Savaka Sanko Sankang Namami Napmo Arahato Samma Saputasa Arahato Samma Saputasa 
Focus the mind on the breath, the air entering into the nose, that sound that you hear, or the sensation of air moving into the nose over the skin. This is the present moment. Whenever the mind is off the breath, cut that off and let it go. Come back to the breath. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in in out
For those of you guys that have joined us since we started our meditation, welcome. Pleased to see you guys here. We're going to move into the learning part of our class where a student volunteers to read a particular chapter and then afterwards I will teach anything that I would like to share on that particular chapter, keeping in mind that I've already explained each one of these chapters in a lot of depth in the actual books and I'm only going to be able to teach to a certain level of detail in class but then mostly what I'm going to be doing is opening up to your questions because if you have learned these chapters before class or you learn them as they're being read in class then you may have questions related to the actual chapters so feel free to ask any questions that you like by putting those into Facebook YouTube or Zoom in the comment section our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys for any questions that you have, and we'll go ahead and progress through chapters 11 through 20 this week. Hello, Richard. Concentration by mindfulness of breathing leads to the destruction of the tense. Monks, 
Concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, leads to destruction of the tense fetters. And how monks is concentration by mindfulness of breathing, developed and cultivated, so that it leads to the destruction of the tense. Here monks, a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body. Repeat at chapter one. He trains us, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. He trains us, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. It is in this way, monks, that concentration by mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it leads to the destruction of the tense. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So let's start off by just describing what the taints are. What a taint is, is it's pollution. It's pollution of mind or these fetters. The 10 fetters are the 10 individual specific problems that the Buddha describes as part of the unenlightened mind. And in order to get to enlightenment, you need to eliminate the 10 fetters. These are described in kind of a summary version as part of the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. And there we describe them as craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. But in true reality, these three poisons or three unwholesome roots go down into much more detail described as the 10 fetters. This is a common teaching tactic that the Buddha used where he would kind of layer his teachings one at a time, kind of deepening your understanding as you get deeper and deeper into his teachings. And in order for anybody to progress to enlightenment, you would need to ultimately come to understand what those 10 fetters are, which you can find throughout this book series and through the classes that I teach. You would need to know what those 10 fetters are and how to actually eliminate them as part of your practice. And what the Buddha is explaining here in this first paragraph and essentially the entire teaching is that breathing mindfulness meditation is one of the solutions to eliminating the taints or the fetters. It's not the only solution. And it's important that you understand the Buddhist teachings in totality, that you don't just think that reading this one teaching, that that's all you need is breathing mindfulness meditation, because there's a lot more than only breathing mindfulness meditation that you would need to eliminate the taints. But it's one part of it, because what breathing mindfulness meditation is doing is it's training the mind to let go. And what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's holding on to these 10 fetters. It's holding on to these. And that's why we stay trapped in the cycle of rebirth in the unenlightened state is that's what a fetter is. It's like a ball and chain around your ankle that is keeping you trapped in the unenlightened state, thus being trapped in the cycle of rebirth. So in order to get liberated from discontentedness and get liberated from the cycle of rebirth, you need to eliminate the fetters. And it's breathing mindfulness meditation that's training the mind to let go, let go, let go. So essentially what you're doing is you're softening up the mind. You're developing mindfulness and concentration as well, but you're softening up the mind so that ultimately as you get into the jhanas and you get closer to those four stages of enlightenment, then 
your mind is kind of prepared and ready and willing to let go of these 10 fetters. You're also developing mindfulness as part of this path and as part of breathing mindfulness meditation. The Buddha explains here, not only are you looking to destroy these taints or these fetters, but down here where he says, you know, going to the forest, to the foot of a tree or to an empty hut sits down. Right. So he's talking about seated meditation here, even though there's four different positions, having folded his legs crosswise, straighten his body and set up mindfulness in front of him. I talk about this as part of learning and sharing with you breathing mindfulness meditation that you should set up mindfulness in front of you prior to meditating. This is awareness of mind. So that's what he's describing there is making sure that you start having awareness of mind, that you don't just plop down into meditation and start trying to meditate, but you kind of ease the mind in the meditation. This is why people will kind of come into the house, they'll take off their shoes, kind of empty out the organs, kind of get themselves adjusted in a meditation position, and then start bringing awareness of the mind, maybe with some chanting or something like that. And then the Buddha says, just mindful, he breathes in. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. This is where in the short little bit of guidance that I gave today where I said, okay, now breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Fixate the mind on the breath. This is bringing the awareness of mind to the breath or the way the Buddha is saying it is just mindful he breathes in. So what he's saying is bring your awareness of mind to the breath and breathe in fixating the mind on the breath and having awareness of that breath all the way in, experiencing the full inhale. And then on the exhale, same thing, mindful he breathes out. So having full awareness of the mind on the breath, on the exhale. And what the mind's going to want to do, this unenlightened mind is going to want to go to the past or to the future, have all these thoughts and ideas. And you're going to see in other parts of the Buddhist teachings within this book, not today, I think, but it's in a future class where you'll see that the Buddha says to cut off the thoughts, that when the mind essentially moves off the breath, that you cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. This is what slowly trains the mind to be more easily able and willing to let go. So you're cultivating this awareness of mind or this mindfulness. You're cultivating this concentration or this singleness of mind, focusing on the breath. And you're training the mind to really easily let go so that when you're in daily life and you see something that's disagreeable to the mind and you feel a little bit of frustration or anger starting to arise, you can cut that off and let it go because you've trained that way in meditation. If you train that way in meditation over a consistent long-term period, then in daily life, when you see certain things that are starting to produce conditioned, pleasant feelings, painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant and you start becoming aware of those bodily sensations that are kind of the precursor to the feelings coming into the mind, then when you're aware of that, you can cut it off and let it go. And then this person eventually will have eliminated all the craving desire attachments that are causing these discontent feelings to arise. And eventually you can get to the point where you see that exact same thing occur that once arose all kinds of anger, but you cut that off so many times that now you can see that same exact thing and the mind is completely peaceful despite what's going on. You no longer view this as a disagreeable thing. Instead, you just realize that it's something that's happening in the world. It's impermanent and there's no reason to allow your mind to get shaken up by it. 
So here the Buddha is explaining how breathing mindfulness meditation is part of the practice to eliminate these 10 fetters and ultimately get to enlightenment. This part here in the middle, this references back to chapter one, which we studied last week, where there's a whole long series of guidance that the Buddha provides as a way to lead you into meditation. Just like when I do kind of a full meditation guidance where I'm guiding newer students, I will guide them for a longer period of time. There are certain statements that a teacher will make to kind of guide the students towards meditating and then we'll just kind of stop talking and let the student do the work for an extended period of time. And this is the statements that the Buddha used and you can see them in chapter one of this book because I didn't repeat them over and over because they show up many times in this book. But you can see what those statements are. These aren't statements that you need to repeat in the mind necessarily. You can, but you're not interested in doing that all the time. You would ultimately like to get to the point where you can go into meditation, ease the mind in there, do the work that you need to do, cutting off all the thoughts, coming back to the breath, and then ease the mind out. But for a period of time, you might need to use some of this guidance and the guidance that I give or the guidance that the Buddha gives in order to ease the mind into meditation. And then when you're in meditation, you should just be having the body, the mind, and the breath focusing on the breath with the mind to arise mindfulness, arise concentration, and eliminate craving, desire, attachment by cutting off any thoughts and letting it go. So let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter. Yes, teacher. So uh, one cannot be able to practice meditation all the day, but one can be able to cut off at least the unwholesome thoughts all over the day, right? Yes. So our meditation is a dedicated, active, independent, purposeful training session where we're using either seated, standing, lying, or walking positions. We're actively training the mind through this purposeful, dedicated practice to train the mind. And we're cutting off all thoughts in meditation. That's our training. But then throughout all other times of your day, whenever you observe an unwholesome thought arising in the mind, you take effort using right effort as part of the Eightfold Path to cut off and let go of that unwholesome thought that is arising in the mind. You can't actually meditate all day long, but you can practice mindfulness all day long. You can practice awareness of mind. And when you have the awareness that there's these unwholesome thoughts arising in the mind, you cut them off and let them go. And that'll get easier and easier as you practice breathing mindfulness meditation. And in your daily life where you see wholesome thoughts, you support those, you encourage those. So if generosity comes into the mind or loving kindness or compassion or equanimity or any of these other feelings or mental states come into the mind, you support those, encourage those, don't allow those to fade because they're wholesome. But in daily life, the unwholesome thoughts is what you're cutting off. Our training in meditation, we're cutting off all thoughts just to train the mind to easily let go, much like a athlete will train in cardiorespiratory different exercises, maybe weight training, maybe agility training, and all different kinds of other training, but maybe their sport is swimming, and that's what they do is they swim. 
but yet they're doing all these other exercises during their training. In daily life, they're swimming. So the same thing with us is our training is very different than what we do in daily life. Our training is cutting off all thoughts, even though you know there's going to be thoughts. You're never going to be able to eliminate thoughts in meditation. Even when the mind is enlightened, you're still going to have the occasional thought. But you, through cutting off all thoughts, over time, you will still the mind, you will quiet the mind, you'll get these longer and longer periods of peacefulness. And the way that that happens is through meditation, yes, cutting off all thoughts, but then in daily life, when you see unwholesome thoughts come up, you cut those off and let them go. In daily life, when wholesome thoughts are arising, you support those, you encourage those, not allowing them to fade. Thanks, Richard. No more questions. All right, so let's go to chapter 12. Yes, and the next volunteer is Miranda. Grapefruit benefit of breathing mindfulness meditation, Anapanasati. Monks, one thing when developed and cultivated is of grapefruit benefit. What one thing? Mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. And how, monks, is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is of grapefruit and benefit? Here, monks, a monk, having gone to the forest to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he knows, I breathe out short. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body, repeated as in chapter one, he trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. It is monks when mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation is developed and cultivated in this way that it is of great fruit benefit. All right. Thank you, Miranda. Appreciate that. So you're going to see a general theme in this book volume seven, that the Buddha is always pointing to breathing mindfulness meditation, saying, you know, this is the way to enlightenment. He says that many different times, many different ways. Sometimes he just says it as simply as this, it's just saying, hey, it's great benefit. Other times he includes explaining to you that it's going to lead to enlightenment. Other times he talks about it like the last chapter, that it eliminates the 10 fetters. Other times he talks about it as developing the four foundations of mindfulness, developing the seven factors of enlightenment, developing concentration or mindfulness. He's always pointing to it in one way or another. So remember, these books are actually a collection of extracts, over 45 volumes of books in the Pali Canon. There's a team of people that combed through that and extracted the most important teachings. And now we have them in this one book about breathing mindfulness meditation. And each one of these books is around a certain topic. So what you're going to see throughout this book, because it's all about breathing mindfulness meditation, is the Buddha pointing to breathing mindfulness meditation in multiple ways. And as I mentioned last week, it's important that you don't look at the Buddha's teachings in isolation, but instead you understand the totality. So that when you see the Buddha explaining here that there's this one thing that is of great fruit and benefit, he's not saying that this is the only thing you need to be doing as part of your life practice to get to enlightenment. He's just highlighting the importance and it's such a priority in our practice. So as I mentioned last week about the way of practice, a Buddhist practitioner has this way of practice. Our daily practice is based on generosity, 
moral conduct, and meditation. These are the three things that a practitioner should be doing on a regular basis as part of their daily practice. They should be practicing generosity, giving and sharing, not trying to just fulfill your own selfish desires. This helps you to eliminate craving desire attachment, training the mind to let go. And then you practice this moral conduct that we see in the Eightfold Path, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the five precepts and other teachings plug into that. So by practicing good, wholesome moral conduct, we're not causing harm to others, so therefore harm isn't coming back to us. And then that third component of the way of practice is meditation. And that's so important that we do that on a daily basis. So our daily life becomes practicing generosity, practicing moral conduct, and practicing meditation. And this is how you gradually, slowly train the mind towards enlightenment. And of course, there's other teachings that are part of this, which is the whole entire Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths plugging into that, the Five Precepts plugging into that, understanding the natural law of gamma, what is merit, understanding how to really develop a really well-refined meditation practice, understanding the three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance. You know, we could go on and on and on of all the things that you need to learn in order to get to enlightenment. But if you would really like to simplify and really look at, you know, what do I need to be practicing on a regular, daily, consistent basis? It's generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. These are the three things that we call the way of practice. And the Buddha's pointing to that here is, you know, always pointing to meditation and specifically breathing mindfulness meditation. Even though he talks about loving kindness meditation, and that's really important, the antidote of loving kindness meditation is fixing or resolving or remedying ill will. That anger, hatred, ill will is being eliminated through practicing loving kindness meditation. That's one of the fetters out of the 10 fetters. But if you look at craving, desire, attachment, it really runs through almost all of the fetters pretty much. That craving, desire, attachment is such a significant problem, such a primary problem in the unenlightened mind. This is why breathing mindfulness meditation takes such a priority. And you see that the Buddha points to this quite often. Any questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher. Talking about the great fruit and benefit, uh, since I started learning and practicing these teachings, I'm observing that the effort that I need to do to bring the mind to the present moment is less and less. Is this something that normally happens or I'm, I'm doing something wrong? Yeah, this is actually quite normal that as you progress and you practice more and more, you'll see that the benefits are accumulating. So when we first start, the mind is very polluted, it's heavily defiled, these fetters are very firmly rooted, there's these taints and pollution of mind that is just, you know, essentially taken over the mind. And then as we start practicing, you know, we're six months in, a year in, a year and a half, two years in, we've cleaned out a lot of this aspects of the mind, a lot of this pollution has been cleaned out. So what you realize is that you can get into the present moment and you can keep the mind residing there you know for longer and longer periods of time and it takes you less effort to move the mind into there so where initially you might have really struggled with just getting five or ten minutes of meditation as you kind of accumulate the benefits you'll notice that it becomes easier and easier so it's kind of like the way i think about it when we first start out it's like an empty bucket 
and we go over to a trough of water and we start scooping this water into the bucket. Those first many scoops, the bucket's empty and it's really hard because our muscles aren't really well developed to scoop this water and start accumulating the water in the bucket. But after we do that for a period of time, we get halfway or three quarters full of a bucket, it becomes a lot easier because our muscles are now more attuned to scooping this water we're observing that more and more water is collecting and next thing you know this this bucket of water is overflowing with water and now the sun's going to evaporate some of the water but then it's so easy to just fill up the bucket again because there was only a little bit of water that evaporated whereas if you only have a little bit of water in the bucket and the sun evaporates the water it's a lot harder to fill it back up again so Another analogy for those of you guys that aren't into buckets of water, maybe you're into snow. It's like rolling a snowball. You know, you start out kind of packing the snow. It's kind of hard to get the snow sometimes packed together. You kind of lay it on the ground. And sometimes it takes a little while to get it started. But once you get it started and you get it rolling and it gets really big, it's so easy to accumulate this bigger and bigger snowball. And it's the same thing with meditation, that as you get this underway and you start clearing out more and more of this pollution, getting into that peaceful state of mind and maintaining that for longer periods of time in meditation and outside of meditation becomes more and more effortless. And that's ultimately where the mind is significantly improving the condition of the mind because you're clearing out more and more of the pollution. So you're observing the qualities of the enlightened mind coming through more and more. Yeah, thanks, teacher. Let's go to Miranda. Yes, teacher David. On uh, Facebook, Kaylee asks, while practicing kindness, can we rid ourselves of relationships that cause us to be uncomfortable around toxic people? Yes, this is part of cleaning up your gamma, that once you're on this path and you understand right view, for example, that all of your discontent feelings are being caused by your own mind. And you know that, that there's craving, desire, attachment there. You might have in the past been holding on to certain relationships because you were afraid to let them go or your mind was just holding on for various reasons. You didn't have the wisdom of how these unwholesome relationships were really affecting you and you've been holding on and holding on and holding on. And now you've got to the point where, yeah, there's discontentedness in the relationship. You might decide that you would like to kind of move on and beyond this relationship. You recognize that it's still your discontentedness, that you're causing your own discontentedness, but you realize that this relationship is such that you're not interested in trying to repair it or you know improve it or anything like this, that it's just best to kind of move on. And you can do this without judging the individual and looking down on them. You can practice loving kindness, which is a genuine interest in seeing this being be well. You can practice compassion, which is concern for their misfortune. But then because of wise decision making and you know what your relationship has been like with this person, you just choose to move on. I don't suggest that you go to this person. This is sometimes what people will do is go to this person and confront them and tell them that you're no longer going to be their friend or you're moving on and things like this. Unless, of course, it's a significant other like a life partner, you're going to have to you know, just have a discussion to end the relationship. But if it's just a friend or an acquaintance or somebody that you can just choose to no longer 
call on the phone or maybe you just choose to you know maybe not answer the phone as much when they call or you just choose not to go out with them anymore you don't have to confront the relationship and say that you're going to move on you can just move on and just kind of slowly move away from the relationship and this will be best for their mind and your mind whereas if you confronted this person and you told them that you're going to leave this is where they might try to hold on and they might struggle and it might make it more difficult for you to move on so you can move on from relationships because relationships are impermanent and you don't necessarily need to do that with vengeance or anger or aggression but using some of the language that you said you know if it's a toxic relationship where you're not able to practice in a way that is wholesome and they're not able to practice in a way that's wholesome with you, it's oftentimes better to just move on. And now if you make new relationships, do so with the understanding of how to love without attachment. In volume one, there's a chapter 15, which teaches you true love and how to love without attachment, whether it's a friend or family or acquaintance or whatever, you can learn how to not sabotage your relationships allowing them to get to the point where they are unwholesome or toxic. You can maintain healthy relationships, but that takes learning. It takes reflection and it takes practice to learn how to do that. And loving kindness meditation, of course, is really important for that. But breathing mindfulness meditation is highly important to learn how to love without attachment because the unenlightened mind wants to grab on and it wants to hold on to this individual thinking that you know this is going to fulfill you and this is going to somehow create inner peace and we oftentimes crush and sabotage our relationships because of our own craving desire attachment so by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation while also in daily life through your intention speech and actions practice loving kindness and compassion with discernment or wise decision making you can choose to move on from relationships and then when you create new relationships look to create relationships with wholesome people and maintaining relationships that are practicing true love where you don't have attachment to them and they don't have attachment to you because if there's attachment it's going to cause discontentedness in the relationship and it's only a matter of time before this relationship will most likely end. So by keeping your relationships clean and clear of craving, desire, attachment, this will ensure the longevity of your relationships and the health of your relationships, and you'll have more fulfilling relationships, both personally and professionally. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right, well, let's move on to the next chapter, chapter 13. Concentration by mindfulness of breathing is of great fruit and benefit. Monks, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. And how, monks, is concentration by mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and benefit? Here, monks, a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful, he breathes in, mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long, or breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short, or breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. He trains us experiencing the whole body. He trains us reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in, 
He trains us, reflecting on letting go. I will breathe out. It is in this way, monks, that concentration by mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and benefit. Mind liberated from the tense. I too, monks, before my enlightenment, while I was still unawakened, but intent on awakening, not yet fully enlightened, generally dwelt in this dwelling. While I generally dwelt in this dwelling, neither my body nor my eyes became fatigued, and my mind, by not clinging, was liberated from the things, fetters. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may, may neither my body nor my eyes become fatigued, and may my mind, by not clinging, be liberated from the things. This same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Let me teach from there. Basum, we'll kind of take one at a time. So this first part that Basum read is the same thing that we read in the last chapter. And now we're going into this next part where it's similar to what we read in another chapter. But this is a unique glimpse into what the Buddha is talking about because he's actually talking about before he was enlightened. He's talking about his journey to enlightenment in a brief kind of little thing here where he says, you know, before he was enlightened, while he was still unawakened, but he was intent on awakening. He was progressing towards awakening, but he wasn't yet fully awakened. He generally dwelt in this dwelling, which is breathing mindfulness meditation. He calls breathing mindfulness meditation a dwelling, like a residence. Like this is where we should be residing in this dwelling of breathing mindfulness meditation. And while he was dwelling in breathing mindfulness meditation, he's saying neither my body nor my eyes became fatigued in my mind by not clinging was liberated from the taints. So essentially, as the mind becomes more and more liberated, you lay down the burden of carrying around craving, desire, attachment, or clinging as well. And carrying around craving, desire, attachment really weighs on the mind, and it really weighs on the body. So if you experience like a lot of heaviness in your feet or your legs or on your shoulders and your neck, you feel a lot of pressure and stress, or your eyes get really, really tired from looking at things and seeing things, this is the burden of craving, desire, attachment. When all of that is eliminated through breathing mindfulness meditation, what the Buddha is explaining to you here is that those things don't occur, that neither the body nor the mind become fatigued. This is why an enlightened being is practicing those seven factors of enlightenment. And one of those factors is the enlightenment factor of energy. The enlightenment factor of energy is having the willingness and motivation to do something, this enthusiasm to do something. You know where you've been kind of like lazy and you just sit on the couch or you just don't feel like moving. You're so tired. You just need to sit there and just essentially do nothing in order to recoup your energy. This is because the mind in the body is so bogged down by carrying around craving, desire, attachment, because it's a real burden to carry that around. When you let go of this craving, desire, attachment in the mind more and more and more, then the mind is very light. It's very tranquil. You're practicing this enlightenment factor of energy where you could be laying on the sofa, which you'll do as an enlightened being. You'll lay down, you'll relax, but someone might come in and say, hey, I need your help with X, Y, Z. 
boom, you can just get up and go because you have the energy. You have the enlightenment factor of energy where in the unenlightened state, someone might come in and say, hey, can you come help me with X, Y, Z? And you're like, oh, do I really have to? Why do you want me to help you with this? Oh, gosh, I'm just trying to relax. My feet are so tired. My head is hurting. My eyes are hurting. So this improvement to the condition of the mind and bringing the mind into the middle where the mind is performing optimally that's what happens as the mind gets closer to enlightenment is it's performing optimally when the mind is performing optimally it's very tranquil and it's very light and therefore the body can perform tranquil or the body will perform well and be tranquil as well People who are nearing close to enlightenment and who are enlightened, you often see a very clear complexion that their skin and their eyes, everything becomes much more clear because the mind is functioning with more clarity and it's functioning more optimally that the body, the hair and the skin and the eyes has more clarity as well. You see this brightness and this radiance. This is because the mind's being more trained to function more optimally. And then the Buddha, rather than trying to push everybody and saying, you know, since I feel this way and since this is my results, all of you have to do that too. He doesn't teach that way. He just says, this is what I experienced as part of my enlightenment. And then this next paragraph, he says, okay, if anybody should aspire, should neither my body nor my eyes become fatigued and may my mind by not clinging be liberated from the taints, this same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. This is how a Buddha teaches. They don't push. They don't guilt. They don't shame. They don't fear people into practicing their teachings because part of getting to enlightenment is to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear, among other things. So he's not pushing people. He's not harassing people. He's not standing on the street corner, beating a drum, holding up a sign, trying to tell everyone they're doomed if they don't practice his teachings. Instead, what a Buddha is going to do is say, this is the experience I had. Here's what it took for me to get to that experience. And if you would like to experience that too, here's how to do it right? Because he's already experiencing this peacefulness. He doesn't have a craving and a desire for everyone to get enlightened. He knows that his teachings will lead everyone to enlightenment, but he doesn't have this longing and yearning for that to occur. He knows that that needs to happen gradually. He even knew during his lifetime that it wouldn't be his lifetime that all of humanity would become enlightened. He knew it would be much later after his death. So here, this is a great place to observe how a Buddha introduces his teachings to others that they don't push, they don't force. This is something that you can see in the news sometimes or on your street corners. You can even see this in Facebook sometimes where people are pushing others to learn the teachings that they feel that they understand. This is one of the ways to know that someone isn't enlightened. If they're pushing and forcing and pressuring somebody to do something, then they still have craving, desire, attachment. And this is a perfect example of how an enlightened being, i.e. a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, is just saying, these are my results. This is what I experienced. Here's how I did it. And if you would like to do that too, here's what I would suggest for you. So this little two paragraphs is sharing a lot of content that you can glean from here. Any questions on this part so far? No questions here. All right, so we'll go to the next part. Abandoning the memories and the intention connected with the household life. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires 
made the memories and intentions connected with the household life be abandoned by me, this same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Okay, so we talked about this last week because this was also showing up in a chapter last week. But I'll just remind you guys that, you know, as you move from household life into ordained life, which the Buddha is talking to ordained practitioners, there are certain pleasures and certain things that they enjoyed as part of their household life that they're no longer experiencing as part of this ordained life. So the Buddha is essentially sharing with them, cut that off, let that go, leave it in the past so that you can focus on the present moment. And we can learn from this same teaching because even if you were a household practitioner in the past and you intend to maintain the lifestyle of being a household practitioner, you can still attain enlightenment as a household practitioner, but things that occurred in the past, you're going to have to let them go. Whether they were pleasant or whether they were painful, you're going to have to let them go and train the mind to let go. And it's breathing mindfulness meditation that does that. So if right now you don't really have much money, but in the past you had a whole lot of money and you were able to afford things in a way that you can't afford any longer today, you're going to have to let go of thinking that you're rich or you're wealthy or that you can afford all of these things. You have to cut that off and let that go, all those pleasures that you indulged in. Or if you had certain painful experiences in the past, maybe you had verbal abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse, or maybe you were really bad in school and people mocked you and bullied you or things like this. In order to get to enlightenment, you have to leave all that in the past. And the way to do that is through breathing mindfulness meditation, cutting off those thoughts and letting them go. And then in daily life, as they arise, you cut them off and let them go as well. And then that way you focus on the here and now and you make decisions based on the here and now, not based on things from the past. Questions on this little section here? No question, teacher. All right. Avoiding both the unrepulsive and the repulsive, residing equanimous, mindful, and clearly comprehending. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, May I reside perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive. The same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. If a monk aspires, may I reside, may I reside perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. This same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. If a monk aspires, may I reside perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive and the repulsive. The same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. If a monk aspires, may I reside perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive. The same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. If a monk aspires, avoiding both the unrepulsive and the repulsive, may I reside equanimous, mindful, and clearly comprehending. This same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Okay, so here the Buddha is helping you to bring the mind to the middle. Here he first starts out with saying, perceiving the repulsive and the unrepulsive. The unrepulsive would be something that's agreeable, something that's pleasurable. He's using this language of unrepulsive, but essentially it's this pleasurable, agreeable thing. And he's saying, may I perceive that to be repulsive, meaning I'm not interested to partake in this central desire or this 
overly pleasurable thing because you know that that's detrimental to the mind. And instead, let me bring the mind to the middle where I no longer see that agreeable thing that I need to indulge in, but instead I practice this middle way. And that's what he's saying, using breathing mindfulness meditation to accomplish that. And then likewise, he says here that perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. So if you see something disagreeable or repulsive, he's saying, see that as unrepulsive. So when you see something that is disagreeable, say you're out on the street and you see a mother or a father beating their child and inside you're just like, oh my goodness, and you disagree with this and it's arising all of this frustration or irritation or maybe hatred. The Buddha is saying, see that as unrepulsive, move the mind to the middle and don't allow the mind to dwell in these disagreeable feelings because it's only going to uh, allow the mind to create this discontentedness. So he's essentially giving different variations of that as you go through this teaching here, is that what you would ultimately like to get to is where there is no agreeable or disagreeable. You're going to experience things through the six sense bases. There's the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact in the mind. So you're going to see forms, you're going to hear sounds, you're going to smell odors, you're going to taste flavors, you're going to have physical objects come in contact with the body, and you're going to have mental objects in the mind. These are going to be viewed as agreeable and disagreeable. If they're agreeable, there's going to be these pleasant feelings that arise in the mind, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. And then if they're disagreeable, there's going to be these painful feelings of anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, things like this are going to arise in the mind. Well, this is what you're going to observe that is happening in the unenlightened mind. But as you're aware of these things occurring and you see that occurring with mindfulness or awareness of mind, you cut off those pleasant feelings and painful feelings because they're based on some condition of something is agreeable. I get these pleasant feelings. If it's disagreeable, I get these painful feelings. You would like to stop the mind from doing that. You would like to be able to look out at the world and no matter what's happening in the world, the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy despite what's going on in the world. It doesn't mean that you agree with what you see in the world. It just means that you don't allow the mind to be shaken up by things. So what you need to ultimately get to as you practice more and more breathing mindfulness meditation and you become more aware of this complete path is that there is no more agreeable and disagreeable. It's just things that are happening and it's all impermanent and you're just going to make the choice to remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy create a stable mind where it's unaffected by all of this impermanence in the world. And that's what the Buddha is giving you guidance here on where he says, reside equanimous. Equanimity is this evenness of temper, this calmness, this composure, especially in difficult situations. So if you lack calmness, then you're not going to have mindfulness. You're not going to have concentration and you're not going to have wisdom. You can't access the wisdom to make wise decisions. So if your mind is uncalm and it's shaken up by every little thing that you see, that you hear, that you smell, that you taste, that comes in contact with the body, your thoughts that are in the mind as mental objects, if your mind's shaken up by all this stuff, your mind is uncalm. Therefore, you're not going to be able to practice mindfulness or awareness of mind. 
Therefore, you're not going to have concentration or singleness of mind. Therefore, you're not going to be able to access the wisdom to make wise decisions and to improve the situation. This is where if you've ever gotten a phone call about something traumatic going on in your family or in your work and your mind was shaken up by it and you made a whole bunch of rapid decisions and you actually made the situation worse because the mind was uncalm, you didn't have mindfulness concentration, you weren't able to access your wisdom and you made the situation worse. And this can happen with painful experiences, but it can also happen with pleasant feelings too. You can become so overjoyed or so much happiness, so much pleasure in the mind that the mind is uncalm, therefore it doesn't have mindfulness, concentration, or wisdom. So the Buddha is guiding you here to move the mind away from those repulsive things, those things that you see as disagreeable, move the mind away from that, seeing that as just something that's happening. And then when you see something pleasurable or agreeable or unrepulsive, he's saying move your mind away from that too so that you can just reside in the middle with equanimity. This calmness, this composure, this evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. Any questions on this one? Yes, teacher. Let's go to Miranda. Yes, teacher. Um, if this is being understood correctly, if the enlightened mind encounters, for instance, an unpleasant sight, like a piece of rotten food, there would be no feeling of disgust. The enlightened mind would simply see this with the eyes and know it's just a piece of rotten food and deal with it accordingly without any unpleasant feelings. And this is what an unenlightened being should be really training their mind towards, cutting off any unpleasant feelings upon encountering something like that, just dealing with it. Exactly. When you pull out that rotten food and you see it with your eyes, you smell it with the nose instead of like, oh, gosh, that's so horrible. Who left this in here? Right. Start complaining about it. We just take it out like, oh, okay, it's rotten food. Yeah, it stinks. Let me put it away. Let me throw it away. You see it as impermanent and you know that the sight is impermanent. The odor is impermanent and there's no reason to allow the mind to be shaken up by it. Whereas if the mind craves to only smell pleasant things, when we smell that unpleasant thing, then the mind's going to be shaken up by it. Or when you see something unpleasant, then the mind's going to be shaken up by it. So when we see things or smell things or hear things, any of these six sense bases, when it's interacting with something, you should always be reminding yourself that it's impermanent. Whether it's pleasant or whether it's painful, you know that you can't latch on to this pleasant thing. Because if you do, it's only a matter of time before that's impermanent and then the painful things are going to come in. So you're 100% correct, Miranda, that an enlightened being is just going to see it as a bunch of impermanence, deal with it appropriately, no sense in getting negative, no sense in being hostile or aggressive or blaming anyone for it. Let me just deal with it. If I need to talk with people in the house in order to perhaps ensure this isn't happening very frequently, then, okay, I'll have that discussion with using the five factors of well-spoken speech, or maybe not. Maybe it's like a one-time thing, once every six months, no big deal. I'll throw it out, deal with it, on to the next thing. And the enlightened being isn't going to be shaken up by that. They're just going to see that it's impermanent and move on, deal with it appropriately. Okay, thank you, sir. You're welcome. No more question. All right. Residing in the first, second, third, and fourth jhana, therefore monks, if a monk aspires 
May I, distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. The same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may I, with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy. The same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be, should be closely attended to. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may I, with the fading away of excitement, remaining imper imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited, calm, serene, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say. Peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He, enter, he enters the third jhana. This same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may I, having given up pleasure and pain, and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. All right. Thank you, Bossum. Here, the Buddha is going through the four jhanas, which he describes as part of the Eightfold Path, which are four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it enters into the first stage of enlightenment. And I describe this as part of the group learning program in detail and help you understand how that occurs. And it's part of right concentration. As part of that eighth step of the Eightfold Path, the mind experiences these four preliminary phases. And it's breathing mindfulness meditation along with all the other teachings, a part of the Eightfold Path that helps the mind move into these jhanas. And the jhanas are like night and day compared to what you experience when you're in the unenlightened state off the path. And even in the unenlightened state on the path, when you first start the path and you're progressing, once the mind moves into the jhanas, it's really, really noticeable. And the Buddha is giving you indications of what you're going to experience when you experience these jhanas. And he's connecting it to meditation here, which is what he doesn't do in the Eightfold Path necessarily. But here he's connecting it directly to breathing mindfulness meditation. Unfortunately, a lot of people in the world think that the jhanas are meditation. They actually have created meditations after the Buddha's death that they call jhana meditation. And they think if you meditate in a certain way that you will produce this jhana in meditation. And that's actually the jhana when you're in the meditation itself. But that's not what the Buddha taught. It's actually these preliminary phases of development that the mind goes through as part of this path. And here you can see really clearly that he's describing the jhana and then he's explaining that it's meditation that helps you to get to that jhana, where what you oftentimes hear with people in the world is they describe meditation as the jhana. And this is a misunderstanding, and it's this teaching that can help you clarify that and understand that it's these 
four preliminary phases that the mind goes through, experiencing various qualities of mind, which are the jhanas. They're the first, second, third, and fourth jhana, or what we call meditation absorption or absorption of meditation, that the mind has absorbed a certain amount of meditation and other teachings that it now starts experiencing these various qualities of mind. And these are preliminary phases that the mind will experience before getting into the first stage of enlightenment. And you don't necessarily have to do anything special in order to get to these jhanas. What you do is you learn, reflect, and practice the Eightfold Path and as a result of practicing the Eightfold Path, you will start to experience these jhanas. This is kind of like the light bulb is kind of starting to flicker. You're starting to see the progress. This is the results or the byproduct of having put together a really well-developed practice of the Eightfold Path. So this is an indication to the practitioner, hey, you're doing things really well because you won't experience the jhanas if you're not putting together the teachings on a very regular, consistent basis. So this is helping you to see that, okay, things are moving along pretty well because now you're starting to experience these various qualities of mind. And at this point, once you're in the jhanas, that's when you really should start honing in on the 10 fetters, particularly the first three fetters, because you would like to move past the jhanas and into the first stage of enlightenment. Because once you're in the first stage of enlightenment, the mind won't regress backwards from there. But when you're in these jhanas, the mind can actually regress out of these jhanas. So you'll get these kind of glimpses of what enlightenment looks like when you're in the jhanas. And there's a lot of people who are in the jhanas, or I shouldn't say a lot, but there are certain people who are in the jhanas who think that they're actually enlightened, but they're not. They're actually just experiencing the jhanas. But there's such a difference and night and day between the jhanas and being off the path or even on the path that because of the big difference between the quality of the mind in the jhanas and outside the jhanas a lot of people think that they actually have attained enlightenment when they're actually just experiencing the jhanas and these are temporary and it's really important to understand that you're not experiencing enlightenment because if you were to become complacent, then your mind can backslide and move out of these jhanas, where once you move through the jhanas and past the jhanas into that first stage of enlightenment, then the mind is firmly rooted in that first stage of enlightenment and it won't regress from there. So no reason to allow the arrogance or pride or conceit to arise as you start observing the quality of the mind improving through experiencing the jhanas. Instead, just realize that that's what it is, that it's the jhanas, they're temporary. Wow, this is utterly amazing. I had no idea that the mind could feel this good. But the really, really good stuff is the fourth stage of enlightenment. So when you get a taste of what an improved condition of mind is like in these four jhanas, and you start realizing what the real potential is, what you experience in the jhanas is minuscule compared to what you experience once the mind gets to the fourth stage of enlightenment as an arahant. But sometimes people get so enamored with the pleasure and the bliss that is experienced in the jhanas that they think that they're enlightened and then they don't actually progress to experience the full results of this path, the ultimate goal of enlightenment, because they kind of bottom out and they kind of become complacent, not realizing that they're not actually enlightened. And then even worse yet, they can actually regress and move out of those jhanas as well. So the Buddha here is just explaining what those jhanas are 
and that it's breathing mindfulness meditation, and of course, all the other steps on the Eightfold Path that is going to help you get to those jhanas. You wouldn't be able to just meditate your way to the jhanas. So if you had a really good meditation practice going on, but yet you still weren't practicing right speech, you're not going to be able to see the jhanas. Or if you had a really good meditation practice, but you weren't practicing right action, for example, you were harming people through your bodily actions, you're not going to be able to experience the jhanas. So meditation is an important part to experience the jhanas, but you need to put together all the other factors of the path as well to be able to experience those jhanas and then ultimately move beyond them. That would be the ultimate goal. Any questions here? No questions here. All right. Residing in the formless perceptions, therefore monks, if a monk aspires, may I, with the complete transcendence of perceptions of forms, with the passing away of the perceptions of sensory actions, with non-attention to perceptions of diversity, aware that space is infinite, enter and reside in the base of the infinity of space, this same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may I, by completely transcending the base of the infinity of space, aware that consciousness is infinite, enter and reside in the base of the infinity of consciousness. The same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, May I, by completely transcending the base of infinity of consciousness, aware that there is nothing, enter and reside in the base of nothingness. The same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may I, by completely transcending the base of nothingness, enter and reside in the base of neither perception nor non-perception. This same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Okay. So here, these are four formless perceptions. So we have the four jhanas and the four stages of enlightenment. And then we have these four formless perceptions or these four additional attainments. Everybody who attains enlightenment is going to experience the four jhanas and they're going to have to move through the four stages of enlightenment in order to get to enlighten as an arahant, that fourth stage of enlightenment. These four formless perceptions or these other attainments, not everybody is going to experience these. There are certain attainments that everyone will experience in order to get to enlightenment, but there's one or two of these that all beings aren't going to actually experience. I explain these in detail in this chapter of what each one of these are, and which ones are going to be experienced by everyone and which ones aren't going to be experienced by everyone. So rather than go through that and discuss that in detail today, I would like to just direct you to the explanation that I explained it in detail in this chapter and then just accept any questions that you guys have on that right now, if there's any questions about it. Doesn't appear to be any question for this part, teacher. Okay, if you guys have any questions on this, those of you guys that haven't read it yet, once you read my explanation, if you have any questions, you can put that into Facebook as a post. You can send me a private message or you can schedule a personal guidance session 
and I'll be pleased to explain it to you in more detail to help you understand in more clarity. But I think you'll find that the explanation is quite clear. All right, so here's the next one. Residing in the elimination of perception and feeling. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may I, by completely transcending the base of neither perception nor non-perception, enter and reside in the elimination of per perception and feeling, the same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Okay, this is another one that I explain in the explanation. So if there's any questions you guys have now, I can accept those. And if you don't have any questions, then you have those other methods that you can get clarification if you ever need clarification on these. Well, all that is felt, not being delighted in, will become cool right here. When monks, the concentration by mindfulness of breathing has been developed and cultivated in this way, if he feels a pleasant feeling, he understands it is impermanent. He understands it is not held to. He understands it is not delighted in. If he feels a painful feeling, he understands it is impermanent. He understands it is not held to. He understands it is not delighted in. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands it is impermanent. He understands it is not held to. He understands it is not delighted in. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it without holding on to it. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it without holding on to it. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it without holding on to it. When he feels a feeling, Terminating with the body, he understands, I felt a feeling terminating with the body. When he feels a feeling terminating with life, he understands, I feel a feeling terminating with life. He understands with the breakup of the body, following the exhaustion of life, all that is felt, not being delighted in, will become cool right here. Just as monks, an oil lamp burns in dependence on the oil and the wick. And with the exhaustion of oil and the wick, it is exhausted through lack of fuel. So too monks, when a monk feels a feeling terminating with the body, he understands, I feel a feeling terminating with the body. When he feels a feeling terminating with life, he understands, I feel a feeling terminating with life. He understands with the breakup of the body following the exhaustion of life, all that is filled, not being delighted in, will become cool right here. Okay, thank you, Bossum, for reading all of these. So here the Buddha is explaining a lot of different facets of how we understand discontentedness of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Understanding that those are all impermanent and it doesn't make sense to hold on to them and cling to them not delighting in those. That's what he's describing. So as we see those arise in the unenlightened mind, that's why we cut them off and let them go. And what you're going to see as a precursor to those feelings arising is right here. You're going to see that there's going to be a feeling in the body. There's going to be, prior to you getting angry or frustrated, there's going to be some feeling. And in order to get to enlightenment, you have to become aware. 
and mindful of those bodily sensations because if you allow the feeling to keep coming into the mind, it's just going to keep polluting the mind. And that might be where you're at now and that's just where you're at. But over time, what you would like to do is develop the ability to observe the bodily sensations prior to any of these feelings coming into the mind. And that's where the Buddha says, terminate it right there with the body. So when he's feeling a feeling, terminate it as a bodily sensation. And then he says in other parts of his teachings that a person who's able to do this is getting close to enlightenment. So you would like to gradually build up this ability to be aware of these bodily sensations so that you can cut off any arising discontentedness before it ever even reaches the mind as a feeling. And then he goes into this bit of an analogy where he talks about this oil lamp that it burns dependent on the oil in the wick. Same thing is what he's pointing to here is that this discontentedness is arising dependent on craving, desire, attachment. That when you get rid of the oil in the wick, the fire can no longer burn in the oil lamp. Same thing is when you get rid of the craving, desire, attachment, there can no longer be any discontentedness that arises in the mind. So when you exhaust or you eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, then there can't be any discontentedness to arise. And the way that you do that is by breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. And when you develop the mind really well, then when you experience those bodily sensations in daily life, you cut them off and let them go so that those conditioned pleasant feelings, those conditioned painful feelings, and those conditioned neither painful nor pleasant feelings never arise. So that's how you eliminate the discontentedness is you go back to the source, go back to the cause, which is the craving, desire, attachment. And it's those bodily sensations that are kind of the spark. It's showing you that something is about to ignite here. Something is about to ignite in the mind. There's this flame that's starting to arise. So put that out before the flame comes into the mind. And then by doing that over time, all craving, desire, attachment will be eliminated you won't even feel the arise of bodily sensations anymore. But you have to stay really diligent and determined to do this so that your mind isn't complacent. And you have to do this for an extended period of time for multiple months and years. And then eventually you get to the point where those same exact things will be happening and there'll be no arising of discontentedness. And you can just smile because you know that the Buddhist teachings led you exactly where he said they do, that things that once infuriated you and would have caused so much anger in the mind, the mind was just completely still and peaceful as a result. And it, the first few times that this happens, it might feel quite odd because you're not used to that. You're used to being very angry, very hostile, very aggressive, maybe having some harsh words to say to somebody, maybe being vindictive or jealous or resentful. And when the mind's not doing that, it's like, whoa, this is odd. This feels kind of strange. I don't know how I feel about this. But then as you go further and further, you start getting accustomed to that. And you realize where in the past, a certain situation would kind of wipe you out for hours or days and you would feel horrible for days. That same situation happens and it's like, I'm just moving on with my life. No big deal. And this can be very liberating and you see the benefits of this path and you're thanking yourself that you've decided to dedicate your time, effort, energy, and resources to this path because you see that in the past where you would get wiped out for hours or days or maybe weeks, 
for one particular situation that arose discontentedness in the mind, now that same situation can occur and you're just off to the next thing. There's no discontentedness whatsoever. Your mind's not shaken up. And you can see that the Buddhist teachings lead exactly where he says they do, to this liberation, to this freedom from strong feelings, to peace, to enlightenment. And this is how you do it through what he's explaining here. One important, important, important aspect of that. Questions on this? No questions here this time. All right. We'll move on to the next chapter. Here there's a lot of explanation for you to read. Chapter 14. Yes, and let's go to Miranda. The enlightenment factors accompanied by breathing mindfulness meditation. Monks, mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. And how, monks, is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and benefit? Here, monks, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness accompanied by, the mind, by mindfulness of breathing, based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing and release. He develops the enlightenment factor of investigation accompanied by mindfulness of breathing based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing and release. He develops the enlightenment factor of energy accompanied by mindfulness of breathing based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing and release. He develops the enlightenment factor of joy accompanied by the mindfulness of breathing based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing, and release. He develops the enlightenment factor of tranquility accompanied by mindfulness of breathing based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing, and release. He develops the enlightenment factor of concentration accompanied by mindfulness of breathing based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing, and release. He develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity, accompanied by mindfulness of breathing, based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing, and release. It is in this way, monks, that mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, is developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and benefit. All right. Thank you, Miranda. Here, the Buddha is connecting breathing mindfulness meditation with the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment are one, mindfulness. This is always useful and should be practiced at all times. This is what guards the mind from discontentedness, that if you're aware of the mind of anything wholesome or unwholesome, then you can apply right effort to either support and encourage the wholesome or eliminate the unwholesome. And mindfulness should always be practiced. And then you've got investigation, energy, and joy, which are practiced whenever the mind is sluggish, when you feel complacency or lethargy coming into the mind, kind of a dullness, then you practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, which is investigating the teachings of the Buddha, which is what you're doing right now. And that helps to spring up energy and it helps to spring up joy in the mind. So this enlightenment factor of investigation and energy and joy help to bring the mind out of that sluggish condition more into the middle. 
And then you've got the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, which when the mind is excited or elated or having euphoria, this is where you can calm it down, bringing it to the middle with tranquility, concentration, equanimity. So these seven factors of enlightenment are additional tools to refine and fine tune the mind. And you're going to use these at different times as you're honing in on the middle way and bringing the mind to perform optimally. You're always practicing mindfulness all the time during all your waking hours. But during the times where the mind is sluggish, you practice investigation, energy, and joy. When you feel the mind is excited or you know, so high, you know, kind of euphoric, you practice tranquility, concentration, equanimity to bring it into the middle. And then when you get into that middle more and more, you're actually practicing all seven factors all the time. So an enlightened being is going to always have mindfulness or awareness of mind. They're going to be consistently investigating the teachings. They're going to have energy. That's that enlightenment factor of energy that I talked about earlier. They're going to have joy. They're going to have this unconditioned joy where the mind is just always joyful, not based on any particular condition. But yet their mind is also going to be tranquil, concentrated, and having equanimity. So it's this perfect balance of a relaxed and attentive mind, yet it's calm and composed, right? So you're going to have this attentive mind, but yet it's going to be calm and relaxed. This is the enlightened mind where it's perfectly optimized in the middle. Questions on this chapter? No question, teacher. All right. And I explain this as we go here in the chapter. You can see that I put in here a section about the seven factors of enlightenment, which is from volume one, but here to help those of you guys that maybe don't have that book or you're reading about the seven factors of enlightenment at this time. So here it is for you right here in this spot. Chapter 15. Great fruit and benefit of breathing mindfulness meditation. Another discourse. Let's skip over these first few paragraphs because these are the same things that we've been reading all along. It was this, essentially the same thing as the last chapter. So let's just go right into this one. Yeah, sure. One of two fruits to be predicted. Monks, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, one of two fruits is to be predicted. Either final knowledge, wisdom in this very life, or if there is a residue of clinging, the state of non-returner. And how monks is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that one of two fruits is to be predicted. Either final knowledge, wisdom in this very life, or if there is a residual residue of clinging, the state of non-returner. Here, monks, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, accompanied by mindfulness of breathing. He develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity, accompanied by mindfulness of breathing, based on seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, elimination, maturing in release. It is in this way that mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that one of two fruits is to be predicted, either final knowledge in this very life, or if there is a residue of clinging, the state of non-returner. Okay, so here the Buddha is explaining how breathing mindfulness meditation leads to either enlightenment, which is the fourth stage of enlightenment as an arahant, or this third stage of enlightenment, which is called non-returner. And a non-returner is going to die in this human life, and then it's going to be reborn into the heavenly realm and attain enlightenment from that realm. So both of those would be 
wonderful for any being to attain. The ideal would be to attain enlightenment as an otter hunt in the fourth stage of enlightenment so that you can enjoy the rest of this life with peacefulness in the mind and then you're done at the end of this life no longer being even reborn into heaven that's not the goal but should you attain the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner you're not going to return back to the human realm you're going to attain enlightenment from the heavenly realm and the buddha is explaining here that it's breathing mindfulness meditation that is going to lead to either of those two states And then specifically, he also talks about the seven factors of enlightenment, which are needed in order to get to that. And he talks about this maturing and release. This is something that you can actually observe as you fine tune the mind more and more, that you might actually get to the point where you observe craving, desire, attachment so readily and you're so aware of it with mindfulness that you can actually also observe when a craving leaves the mind that it matures through your practice. You kind of mature and then it kind of releases from the mind. You can actually feel a certain craving release from the mind. And he calls that maturing and release. So any questions on that part? No question, teacher. All right. Next one. Leading to great good. Monks with mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated. It leads to great good. And how monks is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it leads to great good. Here monks, a monk, develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. He develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feeling and elimination, maturing in release. It is in this way that mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it leads to great good. So this is essentially the same thing as the last one, just instead of using great fruit and benefit, he's saying great good. So very similar. This is common. The way that the Buddha teaches is he will repeat things you know, repetitively because in an oral tradition, you need to repeat things multiple times in order for people to understand them. And in some cases, he will slightly change a word here or there. And by having that repetitive nature, it helps the mind to retain the teachings in this oral tradition better and better. We're in a written tradition where we've now moved into being able to write these teachings down, having the same thing being repeated over and over. It actually is still very beneficial for us to be able to retain these teachings. But here you just see just a slight variation of words, but it's essentially the same thing. Any questions on this one? No questions, sir. All right, go to the next one. Leading to great security from bondage, enlightenment. Monks, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it leads to great security from bondage, enlightenment. And how monks is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it leads to great security from bondage. Here monks, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness the enlightenment factor of equanimity based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release. It is in this way that mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it leads to great security from bondage. Okay, so again, something very similar, but he's describing enlightenment in a different way here. He's saying security from bondage. If you think about the enlightened mind, it's bound up, right? If you've ever had situation where you just feel like your mind is just being bombarded with thoughts or you're just yearning and longing and craving for a certain outcome. The mind is trapped. It's stuck. It's like all bound up. 
But by the time you experience enlightenment, you'll see that there's all this freedom in the mind that you no longer have that pressure. You know, the mind is no longer bound and bound up. So the Buddha is explaining here that breathing mindfulness meditation leads to this great security from bondage. Or another way to say that is getting away from being bound up or eliminating the bindings. So kind of cutting all the ropes and kind of getting beyond it. If you've ever seen a pickup truck, it has a lot of stuff in the back of a bed of a pickup truck. And there's this net or these ropes that are kind of covering all these items in the middle of the bed of the pickup truck. All those items in the bed of the pickup truck is like your mind. And this net is like that bondage. The mind is bound up. And what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is you're going around and kind of cutting all the anchor points so that this net and this bondage can come off and now all this stuff can be free. That's what it means to have great security from bondage is you're getting this liberation, this freedom from the strong feelings. Any questions on this? Yes, sir. We have a question on Zoom from Anel. She writes, what kind of extra effort can be applied to elimination craving arising at the time and place of this observation? Can you say that again, Basim? Yes, sure. What kind of extra effort can be applied to eliminating craving arising at the time and place of this observation? Okay. So... We have this Eightfold Path and we have all these other teachings that we need to gradually learn, gradually practice, and then we have this gradual progress. And to a certain extent, there's just a lot of that that needs to happen in order for craving, desire, attachment to be fully extinguished. You kind of need to experience the arising of these cravings to know that it is a craving and then to train the mind to be restrained from the craving. So if you're doing... in the learning, the reflection, and the practice of the Eightfold Path, which includes breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing generosity, practicing loving kindness meditation, and practicing loving kindness, transforming that ignorance into wisdom, and you're doing this over a consistent long period of time, you just need to do that continuously. You know, oftentimes when somebody kind of is able to view and observe the entire path, the mind thinks like, is there something different? Like, I feel like I understand this path, but yet I keep getting discontent. There keeps being this discontent and there keeps being this craving. Is there something else that I can be doing to root this out and eliminate this? And the answer is, as long as you understand the Eightfold Path and you understand what you need to be doing on a consistent, ongoing basis, then you just need to be doing more and more of this to accumulate the results. That there isn't this extra thing that the Buddha didn't talk about or that isn't available or this secret, you know, recipe of how to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. The Buddha explains it all. And the more that you learn it and practice it, you'll see the improvement to the condition of the mind. But there needs to be a long-term consistent period of doing those things before craving, desire, attachment is fully extinguished. And you're going to need to experience the arising of these craving, desire, attachments in order to know that they're there, cut them off, let them go, and continually have enough experiences over the course of your life that you're turning away from craving, desire, attachment, and walking towards this light. And it just is going to require 
time, effort, energy, and resources to be able to do that where you're actively moving the mind towards the light and away from the darkness. So aside from the other things that you've heard me talk about, Manal, as part of the group learning program and part of all the other teachings that I share with you, there isn't anything extra that I haven't discussed, like some extra technique in order to get rid of craving, desire, attachment. It's breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity. And then in that group learning program, I talk about identifying your cravings and then how to actually put together a plan to eliminate them. So aside from that, you know, you just got to do that over and over and reply to more and more of your cravings. You're going to still experience the arising of some cravings. And then when you see it with mindfulness, then you apply these techniques. You apply these tools at the given time the tools that we're sharing, which is when you observe the bodily sensations that are arising as a result of craving desire attachment, you cut it off and let it go. Thanks, Tishan. No more questions. All right, so we'll go to the next one. Leading to a great sense of motivation. Monks, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it leads to a great sense of motivation. And how monks is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it leads to a great sense of motivation. Here, monks, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of equanimity, combined by mindfulness of breathing, based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing in release. It is in this way that mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it leads to great sense of motivation. Okay, so this is another benefit the Buddha is bringing in and helping you to understand, which is the benefits of breathing mindfulness meditation is this is the way to spring up motivation in the mind is by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. If we didn't practice breathing mindfulness meditation and we just remain complacent, then you're not going to be able to spring up the motivation in the mind. Oftentimes the mind just gets so complacent and it's kind of mired in the darkness, mired in the mud. It doesn't have the motivation to do the meditation, but the meditation and all these other aspects of these teachings is the solution. It's the escape. So if we just sit around and do nothing and we don't invigorate our practice with something like meditation, then we're not walking towards the light. We're just staying in the darkness. So this is another benefit of breathing mindfulness meditation is springing up this sense of motivation in the mind. Questions here? No question, teacher. All right. Residing in great comfort, monks, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it leads to residing in great comfort. And how monks is mindfulness of breathing is de developed and cultivated so that it leads to residing in great comfort. Here, monks, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness the enlightenment factor of equanimity accompanied by mindfulness of breathing based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing in release. It is in this way that mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it leads to residing in great comfort. Monks, just as the river gangs, slants, slopes and inclines towards the east, so too a monk who develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana, enlightenment. And how monks does a monk develop and cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment so that he slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana? Here monks, a monk 
develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing in release. He develops the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. It is in this way, monks, that a monk develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment so that he slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So here, the Buddha is explaining how breathing mindfulness meditation leads to the development of the seven factors of enlightenment, which leads to enlightenment itself. And having attained enlightenment, you will experience this great comfort. And this is what I was explaining, that an enlightened being can relax and lounge around on the sofa or whatever they're doing. But then also, if they need energy, they can spring up and go have energy as well, that they're not going to be dragging their feet or dragging their butt behind them as they move off to something moaning and complaining that they don't want to do it. An enlightened being is not going to have that. They're not going to complain. They're not going to moan and groan. They're just going to get to it and do what they need to do and move on to the next thing. So this is great comfort. When you're carrying around this burden of craving, desire, attachment, the mind is not comfortable in the body is not comfortable because it's carrying around this burden of craving, desire, attachment, this yearning, this longing, the mind and the body isn't comfortable or satisfied with what is a mind that has craving is always longing for something else. You're on the sofa relaxing and you're yearning for something else or you're at work and you're yearning to be at home or you're at home and you're yearning to be on vacation or you're on vacation and you're yearning to be at work the mind's never quite content with where it's at or satisfied with what is it doesn't have this great comfort but a mind that is practicing in this way with breathing mindfulness meditation and the seven factors of enlightenment the mind's going to be very much at peace and very tranquil and it's going to experience this great comfort the mind and the body as well so the buddha is just going through here one by one by one and explaining all these benefits that are coming about based on breathing mindfulness meditation any questions here no question this time teacher all right so we'll move on to the next chapter chapter 16. yes let's go to Miranda. a monk who is not lacking of drama Monks, if, if for just the time of the finger snap, a monk develops mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, he is called the monk who is not lacking of jhana, who acts upon the teachings of the teacher, who responds to his advice, and who does not eat the country's alms food, having produced no results or benefits. How much more, then, those who cultivate it? All right. Thanks, Miranda. Very short one here. So here, remember, we talked about those jhanas, those preliminary phases that the mind goes through prior to getting to enlightenment. And the Buddha is saying here that if someone's practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, they will not lack for jhanas. In other words, they will experience those jhanas as part of cultivating and developing breathing mindfulness meditation. And I think it's also very important here to note some other things that the Buddha explains here too. Is he saying someone who acts upon the teachings of the teacher is that if you're taking up a teacher and considering a person your teacher and you're seeking guidance and you're taking time and effort from that person to learn, you should be respectful of that time and effort because anybody who's sharing these teachings into the world isn't doing it for their own reasons or their own benefits, their own 
selfish desires because someone who is enlightened should already have eliminated any kind of selfish desires. So they're not doing it for their benefit. They're doing it for your benefit. So being diligent in your study is a way to ensure that you're progressing to where you need to be in your practice, but it also shows the teacher that you're dedicated to your learning. And when the Buddha says one who responds to his advice, so a Buddhist teacher shouldn't be telling their students what to do or what not to do in terms of if you've got two different jobs and you say, teacher, which job should I take? The teacher isn't and shouldn't tell you to take job A or take job B. Instead, they should give you teachings to think about and reflect on and ultimately the decision's yours. But there are certain situations where maybe a student is using wrong speech, for example. And in order to help you get to enlightenment, a teacher is going to need to maybe help you see that something is wrong speech. And what the Buddha is saying is, you know, respond to that advice because a teacher sharing that guidance with you, again, is not doing it for their own benefit. They're doing it for your benefit. So if you were hostile or aggressive or harsh to your teacher, a person who's enlightened isn't going to be affected by their student's harshness. But if they see repeated disrespect in a student, they may decide to no longer teach that student as a way of helping that person to realize that by being disrespectful, their gamma is that people aren't going to be willing to teach them. So it's not that the teacher's angry or mad if they're enlightened, but instead as a way of helping you learn, sometimes a teacher might say, you know, step away and choose to not teach you if you're not responding to their advice, so to speak. Not that you have to bow down to your teacher and, you know, uh, grasp onto every single word that they say, but if you're going to consider someone your teacher and involve their time, effort, energy, and resources to share these teachings, it would be wise for you to heave their advice and understand that they're going to need to share with you certain things in order to help you improve your practice. And they're doing that for your benefit, not for their benefit. And then this is another really important one that I think the Buddha is really good at highlighting is that if you can imagine a country that like Thailand that has 70 million-ish people that are here that are working and laboring and doing different things. There's about 300,000 ordained practitioners within Thailand. Those 300,000 ordained practitioners are being supported by the 70 million people going out and working and laboring and sharing food and resources to help them sustain their life. And the idea is, is that these 300,000 ordained practitioners and teachers like me that are being supported by donations should be really deep in their practice. And then by them being really deep in their practice, they're able to share the teachings with the public in order to help them improve the condition of their life. So the Buddha here is explaining that, you know, someone who's eating the country's alms food, essentially someone who's benefiting from the labor and hard work of the household practitioners, if they're not producing results and benefits in their practice, they're really kind of like wasting away. So it's important that if somebody enters into the life of an ordained practitioner or they choose to teach in the way that I am in terms of accepting donations from students, it's important that we really value, appreciate, and have gratitude for these offerings that are given to us. And as teachers and ordained practitioners who are living off the generosity of our students, 
the way that we return that generosity and that appreciation and gratitude to our students is be really diligent in our practice to really develop our own practice really well, but then also find ways to offer those teachings back to the community in terms of classes or courses or retreats or resources like books and podcasts and videos and things like this, that if we were to just sit around, eat all this food, you know, accept all these donations, but then not offer anything back, that wouldn't be the way that would produce beneficial results in the world by having this mutual support of household practitioners supporting teachers and then teachers supporting the students. This is the mutual support that the Buddha set up and he did this intentionally so that ordained practitioners wouldn't just go off and be on their own and become enlightened and not offer anything back. Instead, he doesn't allow in the way that he set up in his guidance is he doesn't allow the ordained practitioners to actually make their own food or make their own money. They need to have this interaction with the household practitioners in order to give the teachings. And when they're giving the teachings, then the household practitioners will provide support. And this is how these teachings continue to flourish in the world. So those of us that are accepting donations should be really diligent in our practice and then be very diligent in the way that we offer these teachings back to the world by allowing anybody and everybody to learn and practice these teachings that choose to step forward to learn. So the Buddha here is explaining that along with really helping us to understand that it's breathing mindfulness meditation that leads to the actual jhanas and of course lots of other things as well. So any questions here? No questions, sir. All right. So now we'll go to chapter 17. Breathing mindfulness meditation, an excellent and peaceful dwelling. The Buddha commented on the incidents of monks dying through suicide by themselves or by encouraging and assisting others to do so. On this occasion, the perfectly enlightened one had given them the discourse of Anapanasati, breathing mindfulness meditation. Monks, this concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is peaceful and superb, an excellent and peaceful dwelling, and it dissolves and distinguishes right on the spot, even unwholesome states, whenever they arise. Just as monks, in the last month of the hot season, when a mass of dust and dirt has swirled up. A great rain cloud out of season disperses it and extinguishes it on the spot. So too, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is peaceful and superb, an excellent and peaceful dwelling, and it dissolves and extinguishes on the spot evil and wholesome states whenever they arise. And how is this so? Here monks, a monk, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body and sit up. The same content, yeah. yeah same content. <laughs> yeah. It is in this way, monks, that concentration by mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it is peaceful and suburb, an excellent and peaceful dwelling, and it dissolves and extinguishes it on the spot, evil and wholesome states, whenever they arise. Okay, thanks, Bassam. So I just kind of skipped Bassam over 
the part that is repeated throughout a lot of these chapters because the real part that the Buddha is honing in on here is he's explaining how breathing mindfulness meditation can eliminate evil unwholesome states on the spot. And essentially what he's describing here is that if you've developed your breathing mindfulness meditation practice on a consistent ongoing basis, then whenever any unwholesome mental states arise, you should be able to essentially meditate those away. So let me give you an example. Let's just say a practitioner has developed their meditation practice for six months or a year. They're experiencing more and more improvement with their entire life practice, including breathing mindfulness meditation. And then say they have this urge to steal or they have this urge to have substances that cause heedlessness. And they can feel the craving arising in the mind to go out and party and have drinks and drugs and party it up with people that maybe they've done that with in the past. Well, if you feel that urge, that craving coming up in the mind, the Buddha is saying, you can actually meditate that away. You can sit down, meditate for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, and allow that feeling to pass so that that craving desire attachment is no longer there kind of producing this feeling that you would like to go out and do something like that. Because you know that stealing or having substances that cause heedlessness is only going to produce unwholesome things in your life. So it wouldn't make sense for you to actually do those things. So this would work for somebody who's developed their practice. But if you are just brand new to this path, you can still try this, but it doesn't mean that it's going to immediately be beneficial. The more time that you've accumulated breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing that on an ongoing basis, this thing that the Buddha is talking about, how it eliminates unwholesome states of the mind, is more and more prevalent and works better and better as you develop the condition of the mind more and more. When there's a lot of craving, desire, attachment in there, it's harder for the mind to let that go. So this is a way to redirect the mind and let go of any evil, unwholesome mental state. If breathing mindfulness meditation is doing that for you five, ten minutes into it, and you observe that it's working, great, keep doing that and do that in the future if you ever observe any craving, desire, attachment arising in the mind. But early in practice, if you were to sit down and meditate and you're trying to fight this urge or this craving to not go out and have drinks and use drugs with your friends, sometimes sitting down in meditation can actually create more of the craving to arise because you're so early in your practice, the mind isn't really well tuned and isn't really well refined yet. So what the Buddha is explaining here is redirecting your mind, taking it in another direction. Instead of walking towards the craving of indulging in substances that cause heedlessness, you're taking the mind in the other direction with meditation by cutting off and letting that go. So if meditation's not doing that for you, five, 10 minutes into it, 15 minutes, you realize the craving is just rumiating and the mind is obsessed with going out and indulging in something like substances that cause heedlessness, then maybe what you do is you choose to stop your meditation, but you still use the teaching that the Buddha is sharing here, which is essentially redirecting the mind. Maybe you go out for a walk. Maybe you go for a bike ride. Maybe you go to the library. Maybe you call up a friend. Maybe you do something else. Maybe you exercise. So the goal would be to redirect the mind away from that craving. Whereas if you just sat on the sofa, the feeling comes up to go have substances that cause heedlessness and you just sat there and did nothing, 
This is what the Buddha calls complacent, that you're not diligent in your practice. You're just sitting there being complacent, allowing the craving to arise in the mind and just kind of obsess the mind. So you've got to take action. And this is where mindfulness and awareness of mind becomes so important that when you're sitting on the sofa and you see this craving, whatever it is, any kind of unwholesome craving arise, you need to take action, either move towards meditation in order to let that go, or redirect the mind somewhere else. Go for a walk, go for a jog, go to the library, go to the movies, go take yourself out to dinner, whatever it is, redirect the mind somewhere else. Over time, you won't need to do that because the cravings will be extinguished more and more. But as you're getting a handle on this and you're getting control over the mind, this is the way that you redirect the mind away from this harmful, unwholesome state of craving, desire, attachment. And same thing if you have anger, hatred, or ill will, same thing. You can use these techniques in order to redirect the mind away from that stuff. So that's the real core of what the Buddha is explaining here. And he uses this analogy that if in the last month of the hot season, after things are really, really dry, if there's this dust that is swirling up in the air and a rain would come and dump rain on this dust, it would disperse the dust. And breathing mindfulness meditation can be that same thing for you. When you observe these evil, unwholesome mental states arising, you can move to breathing mindfulness meditation, or you can redirect the mind with another activity as well. Questions on this chapter? No question, teacher. All right. Chapter 18. Oh, it seems that Miranda has her hand raised. <laughs> oh, okay. Back to that one. Um, yes, sir. Uh, the question was that the monks who had committed suicide and were encouraging and assisting others to do so had been beginning meditation on the unattractiveness of the body, but it seems like they misunderstood the teaching a bit. Is this an example of why it's important to meditate with guidance from a teacher? Yes, indeed. So Miranda went back and looked at the entire discourse. And prior to this, the Buddha had given a teaching at another time about how to meditate on the unattractiveness of the body. And students were kind of off and doing that. And as they were doing so, one of the Buddha's closest students comes to him and says, you know, Buddha, the monks are over there harming themselves. They're cutting themselves. They're killing themselves based on what they're experiencing in their meditations. So the Buddha says to his close student, Ananda, you know, go round up everybody and bring them into the temple, essentially. And I would like to give them a talk of how to actually solve this problem. So these students were off harming themselves and killing themselves without seeking guidance from their teacher. And then once the teacher becomes aware of what's going on, then he delivered this teaching in order to help them understand that if they have that urge to kill themselves, then this would be a way to meditate that away and train the mind to let go of that evil, unwholesome mental state of having a desire to harm the physical body or to kill themselves. And this is one of the reasons why you need a teacher, because if you were just out there listening to this podcast or watching the YouTube videos that I share, and you didn't have any kind of contact with me or ability to reach out to get help, and you just tried to implement these teachings on your own, you're going to run into challenges. You're going to run into problems, and you're going to need to reach over to a teacher and ask for help because the mind can actually degrade if you're not receiving that guidance 
in the help. And this is a perfect example that Miranda brings up of people who had learned something. They went off on their own. They were experiencing all these problems, but yet they weren't going to their teacher and asking for help, which is the Buddha. So once the Buddha found out that there was these problems, he asked for people to come together so that he could actually help them because they weren't seeking guidance themselves. So he kind of made it possible for them to come get some help. And this is a perfect example of why you need a teacher to help you. It doesn't mean if you meditate, you're going to go off and try to kill yourself. But there can be all kinds of challenges along the path. As you're unraveling all this pollution in the mind, the mind can kind of spin out of control sometimes. And that's where you'd like to have a connection to a teacher and be able to reach out and get help, whether it's me or some other teacher. But you need to have somebody in your life that you can reach out to and get help. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right. So we'll go to the next chapter, chapter 18. I would like to just check something to look. You know, we've actually covered this chapter at other parts in our group learning program. I think it was in volume, not group learning program, in this Polycanon in English uh, study group. I think it was in volume three. So what I'll do is just see if you guys have any questions because this is the Buddha explaining meditation again, how to do breathing mindfulness meditation. And then he talks about contemplation on the body to develop that first foundation of mindfulness of bodily sensations then he explains to contemplate on the feelings which is the second foundation of mindfulness then he talks about contemplating on the condition of the mind which is the third one and then he talks about mental objects which is the fourth one so we've covered this one before and what i'll do is just open up to see if there's any questions on this one not seeing any question for this chapter teacher okay and then I think, yes, here below this, I explain the four foundations of mindfulness and give a lot of examples of that. So if you guys have any questions, just feel free to reach out for that. So chapter 19, this is one we haven't covered in this program yet. Protecting one's own mind, you protect others. Monks, once in the past, an acrobat set up his bamboo pole and addressed his apprentice, Mika Mida Kathikala, not sure of this name. <laughs> Thus, come dear, climb the bamboo pole and stand on my shoulders. Having replied, yes, teacher, the apprentice climbed up the bamboo pole and stood on the teacher's shoulders. The acrobat then said to the apprentice, you protect me, dear, and I will protect you. Thus, guarded by one another, protected by one another, we will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. When this was said, the apprentice replied, that's not the way to do it, teacher. You protect yourself, teacher, and I will protect myself. Thus, each self-guarded and self-protected, we will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. That's the method there, the perfectly enlightened one said. It's just as the apprentice said to the teacher, I will protect myself, monks. Thus, should the four foundations of mindfulness be practiced, I will protect others, monks. Thus, should the four foundations of mindfulness be practiced, protecting one's own mind, monks, one protects others. 
protecting others, one protect one's own mind. And how is it, monks, that by protecting one's own mind, one protects others? By the pursuit, development, and cultivation of the four foundations of mindfulness, it is in such a way that by protecting one's own mind, one protects others. And how is it, monks, that by protecting others, one protects one's own mind? By practice, harmlessness, loving kindness, and compassion, it is in such a way that by protecting others, one protects one's own mind. I will protect my own mind, monks. Thus, should the four foundations of mindfulness be practiced. I will protect others, monks. Thus, should the four foundations of mindfulness be practiced. Protecting one's own mind, monks, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects one's own mind. Okay, thanks, Basum. So here, this is a story the Buddha is sharing about an apprentice who's working with the teacher, climbing up the pole, kind of standing on the shoulders of the teacher. And the, the acrobatics teacher says, you know, you protect me and I'll protect you. This is attachment, right? This is craving, desire, attachment. This is like, you do for me and I'll do for you. And the, the student's like, no, 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 that's not the way to do it. You protect yourself and I'll protect myself. And by doing that, we're protecting each other. And the Buddha says, this is the way that we should practice. And this is how I share in our classes where this path to enlightenment is all about your practice. It's not about going out and changing other people and getting other people to do something specific. It's about you improving the condition of your mind. And by you improving the condition of your mind, it helps you, it helps those close to you, and it helps all of humanity. So our goal in this path to enlightenment is not to go out and convert everybody to doing what it is that we do. They need to approach these teachings by their own choice. But through us improving our own practice and improving the way that we function in the world, we're protecting our own mind, but we're also protecting others too because we're protecting them from the harm that we might cause. And by protecting our own mind, we protect others. And the Buddha also says down here, the way to protect others is by practicing patience, harmlessness, loving kindness, and compassion. By us practicing those things, then we're making the choice to be patient. We're making the choice to be harmless. We're making the choice to practice loving kindness or a genuine interest in seeing others be well. And we're making the choice to practice compassion or the concern for others' misfortune. So even though here the Buddha is saying, you know, this is the way to protect others, it's actually still coming back to you in your practice. There's never a time where we go out and we try to convert people. We hold classes, we share invitations, we invite people to come learn with us, but it's up to them to choose to step in and actually learn because there's a million and one decisions that somebody would need to make in order to get to enlightenment and you can't force or pressure somebody or control somebody to actually do that. They have to be able to have the willingness and the interest to accomplish that for themselves and make those million and one decisions along this path over multiple years. So the way that we protect others is we actually protect ourselves by improving the condition of our own mind. And the Buddha gives the four foundations of mindfulness as the way to do that, is by observing the arising of the bodily sensations, cut it off and let it go there. That's the ideal. And the way to be able to do that is to practice breathing mindfulness meditation. 
questions on this? No question this time. All right. So our last chapter for today. Yes, that's good, Miranda. Breathing mindfulness meditation for abandoning mental distraction. Monks, there are these three things. What three? Being difficult to correct, unwholesome friendship, and mental distraction. These are three things. Three other things are to be developed for abandoning these three things. What three? Being easy to correct is to be developed for abandoning being difficult to correct. Wholesome friendship is to be developed for abandoning unwholesome friendship. Mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, is to be developed for abandoning mental distraction. These three things are to be developed for abandoning the former three things. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is kind of sharing three things that are needed in order to get to enlightenment amongst all the other things that he shares is we need to be able to be easily correctable. And this is what we were talking about earlier, that a teacher is going to sometimes need to share with you, you know, hey, John, you, you had some wrong speech there. You know, maybe you can choose to speak to your mom a little bit better or to the waiter a little bit better. You know, who, who knows what might need to be said, but in a private setting, a, a teacher will perhaps need to talk with a student in a constructive, motivating, encouraging way to help them work on things like speech or actions or maybe the ego. If there's ego there, you know, of course, that's something that is often hard for someone to see themselves. And talking privately with their teacher and the teacher being very kind and polite and friendly to be able to help the student see that, the student being easy to correct, they'll actually make more benefit. Same thing as if a student has unwholesome friendships, which is what a student was talking about at the, towards the beginning of class, is that choosing to move away from those unwholesome friendships by creating wholesome friendships. That's really important because if you have a lot of negativity around you throughout your day, that's going to really wear on the mind. It's going to make it very difficult for you to move closer and closer to enlightenment. You can't clear out all your friends and get to enlightenment because if you had no friends at all, your mind's still going to be discontent. So it's not that we need to only have wholesome friends and that's the only way that we're going to get to enlightenment. This is part of it. It's a contribution to it. You still need to understand right view that any discontent feelings is being caused by your own craving, desire, attachments. But where you see unwholesome friendships that have developed as a result of your decisions, then you can also make the decision to move away from those. And then the third one the Buddha is talking about here is abandoning mental distraction or muddle-mindedness, lacking clear comprehension. The way to eliminate that is through practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. And someone who is close to enlightenment or who is enlightened will have a very clear comprehension. They'll be able to comprehend information very easily, very readily. They'll have a lot of focus, a lot of clarity of mind, some concentration, and you won't see this distraction where their mind is pulled to the past or longing for the future. The, the mind will be able to reside clearly in the present moment, very focused and very centered for long periods of time. You won't see their mind move to the past or to the future or be distracted. And the reason why is because they've practiced a lot of breathing mindfulness meditation and they've developed all the other aspects of this path as well that brings the mind into this clarity, into this focus, into this concentration and having deep memory. These are some of the advantages of 
moving closer to enlightenment and actually attaining enlightenment. So any questions here on this chapter? I think there are some questions on Facebook. So uh, let's go to Miranda. Uh, yes, sir. There was one question earlier. Uh, Vikas asked if you could please to explain about death. What would you like to have explained about death? The specifics were not really given, sir. Okay. So maybe if they're still online, they can clarify that. Or if they're not online, or they can always ask in the Facebook group or follow up with me privately as well. Yes, sir. Okay. Any other questions? No question, Mr. Teacher. All right. Well, that brings us to the close of our chapters for today that we were planning to discuss. In our class next week, we're actually going to be covering chapters 21 through 34. So a little bit extra uh, chapters than normal. So we probably aren't going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation prior to class next week in terms of as part of our class. So if you'd like to do meditation before class on your own, that would be really wise. You know, a really wise thing for you to do is do meditation before class so that when we come to class, we can just go ahead and start and move into those 14 chapters that we're going to be discussing as part of next week. So that's what we'll be doing next Saturday. And then tomorrow in our group learning program, we're in chapter 24, which is titled Misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's Teachings. Here, I've already gone through a lot of the teachings in volume one. So we use this last chapter in the book to discuss a lot of the misunderstandings that we see in the world related to Gautama Buddha's teachings so that people can see the path to enlightenment more and more clearly. And I'm going to be sharing those misunderstandings and helping you to see in the Buddhist teachings where you can determine for yourself that what I'm sharing with you is 100% true, that it is a misunderstanding, that we've been doing things in life for the last 2,500 years since the lifetime of the Buddha, and we've gotten away in some cases from what the Buddha actually taught. And it's going back to what he originally taught that is actually going to produce enlightenment. So if we allow these misunderstandings to exist in the world, then we're going to continue to see it be more and more difficult, more and more challenging for people to attain enlightenment. So now that students have learned a good amount in that group learning program, it's a good time to actually focus in on the misunderstandings because when you go into temple environments or you go into Facebook groups or you pick up a book from a certain author who hasn't based their practice in the words of the Buddha, you're going to see some misunderstandings. And if you're misled by those, then it's going to be detrimental and hinder you from enlightenment. So we're going to be covering those tomorrow in Sunday's class. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation, but I'm going to go through and I'm going to teach loving kindness meditation from the very beginning as if you've never studied loving kindness meditation from me. So this can be a really good way to learn loving kindness meditation. And it can also be a good refresher for anybody who needs a refresh on loving kindness meditation. And then we're going to actually do loving kindness meditation together as a group. So I'll see you guys either in next Saturday's class, maybe Sunday and Wednesday, maybe all of those days. In the meantime, have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you in a future class. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.
Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.